Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Pfeiffer. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. Today, we are back for part two of our masterclass, where left field investors partnered with TribeVest to discuss the fundamentals of real estate syndications. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend going back to the episode we released last week, give it a listen, and then move forward with this episode, which is part two. I sat down with Julian McClurkin of TribeVest to go over all the basics of syndications and much more, including how TribeVest allows you to easily invest with others and can play a key role in your real estate syndication success. I'll explain more in the masterclass you're about to hear. Here we go with part two. This is now chapter five, and we're going to focus on how to pick an asset class. Jim, how do you decide what asset class to invest in? Well, you got to start first by knowing what are the options, right? And there are a lot of options. First, the most popular, multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks. That's what everyone's after these days. You also have triple net leases, either industrial or commercial. Now, triple net means the tenant pays real estate, taxes, maintenance, and repairs and the insurance. Oh, I like that. <laughs> exactly. It's like a triple, triple double. Yeah, triple nets are great. I yeah. love those too. And then office and retail are pretty common also, but they are not as popular now given the pandemic and what that's done to those, those industries. What are some other classes? So some of the lesser known classes would be ATM machines, private notes, so mortgage notes, private lending, assisted living facilities, resort properties, agriculture, student housing, oil and gas, and then development. That's a pretty long list. I wouldn't even know where to start. You start with what you know, right? So you probably have lived in an apartment at some point. You, you might have used a self-storage unit at some time. You've probably used an ATM before, right? So start with the things that you know and understand and then branch out from there and figure out, is there something else I could do? You know, a lot of people, I've talked about this, a lot of people get started flipping single family homes and then they move on to maybe buy and hold and then they move on to um, maybe buying small commercial multifamily property. And so if you do that, you'll get, an, you'll get a sense of, okay, now I'm going to get into this syndication thing and do it passively. And so then maybe you go into an apartment building. You learn about apartment buildings and you learn how great those are. And then you think, everyone's talking about mobile home parks. Well, now you have some experience with investing in places where people live. Now you say, okay, how do I transfer that to a mobile home park? So you just kind of keep going, use your community. Mm-hmm. That's where I, you know, I keep saying it, uh, left field investors and tribe vest, they help you learn more stuff, right? So 
you could talk to other people that are investing in these other assets mm -hmm. and find out what works best for you. Because there's some people that specialize in, in one or the other and they're syndicators. Usually the syndicators only do one thing, but they're branching out also. So you got to make sure that they, for example, one of the, one of the syndicators I really like, they're multi-family properties. That's all they ever did. They started into self-storage. Mm -hmm. Now, if they try to do that themselves, there's no chance I would invest with them. Yeah. But what they did is they hired a self-storage expert as a full-time employee who's done it for 30 years. And so, okay, now I can, now I can go and, and evaluate their deals. Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because now they're bringing expertise into the deal with them. With all of these different asset classes, is there one that's like more safe than the other? I know as I'm looking at this list, the first one that I actually got involved in was probably mobile home parks. I purchased my first real piece of real estate. <laughs> it's not even real estate. was a mobile home. Um, and I bought it for like $1,000, fixed it up and resold it for like $7,000. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think the it's difficult to know what is the safest. I, one of the, one thing that people say a lot is you always need a place to live, mm -hmm. right? So if you're investing in multifamily apartments or you're investing in mobile homes, there, people are always going to need those. So that might be the safest, but really all of these are an asset and right? it's a real asset. It's not a piece of paper. You're investing in an asset. So it's very rare that any of these go to zero. Is there risk? Yes. I think the risk is a lot less in real estate and most of these assets than other things that you're in. But then if you're going to do resort investing or you're going to do retail or office right now, you know, right after a pandemic, those, yeah, those might have a little bit more risk or assisted living facilities, mm -hmm. right? You're waiting for demographics to make those a great investment, but yeah. they, they probably will be. So it's, you just have to do your research and understand where you're comfortable, start there. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see, you'll, you'll start branching out. And, um, one of the things that, that everyone talks about in our, in our group is the shiny object syndrome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So shiny object syndrome, I, I think of it as the movie from Up, you know, Squirrel, where the dog goes <laughs> squirrel running around. And I had that, right? I was, when I first started in passive investing, I had a, an old uh, 401k, right, that I rolled over. So, and I turned it into a, something I could invest out of. And that's a whole different story. But I was investing in all kinds of different stuff that I didn't vet properly because I didn't know what I was doing yet because I had the shiny object syndrome. Someone mm -hmm. would be talking to you and someone would say squirrel and I'd run over there and go invest in whatever they told me to invest in. Yeah. And so that's part of why we started Left Field Investors was to give people, okay, you can still do the shiny object and run around, but maybe just invest in things that you know and understand. Is there a strategy involved when it comes to selecting your asset class you want to invest in? Yeah, I think after you've kind of gotten through the beginning stage where you're only investing in a couple things, and most people probably start with multifamily homes and, and multifamily apartment buildings, and that, that's probably a smart way to start. Then you need to start thinking, where do things fit in your investment portfolio? Are you investing for cash flow? Are you investing for appreciation? Mm -hmm. Are you investing for both? So an example would be, if you're investing, uh, if you're doing private lending, right, you're not going to get any appreciation there. So if you're trying to grow your wealth, private lending probably isn't the best place to do that. If you're investing for um, cash flow, you might want to invest in ATMs mm -hmm. and there's no appreciation there. You just get cash every month. And then at the end, you've been paid back plus some, but there's no asset left. It's literally cash flow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you have to match what you're doing with everything else. And also if you want major tax write-offs, again, ATMs is a, is a good investment and others aren't as good. So you need to try to match your strategy to the asset class. And 
as you grow and learn and get into the syndication space, you will find all these different asset classes that you didn't know of. And then you can start picking, you know, picking the right one for the strategy at the time. So when I first started, I had sold all of my multifamily properties. So I had a big tax liability. Mm -hmm. My accountant said, you need to do a lazy 1031, right? So what I did was I found a syndicator who did a great job of doing that bonus depreciation that we talked talked about that gave me these big losses that I could use to offset my gains. Mm -hmm. So that's why I picked that strategy. But then I kept investing with that operator because I liked them, but I had I'd switched and now I needed cash flow, right? Because I wasn't working my W-2 job anymore. Mm -hmm. So now I was investing in these deals that didn't have a lot of cash flow, but that's what I needed. And so I, then I realized, okay, I need to change my strategy because I've written off all this tax liability I can now I need to go start investing for cash flow. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how you do it. You have to figure out what you're looking for. You want to diversify, but you don't want to diversify just for the sake of diversifying. Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that you have a good strategy for how you're accumulating your assets and how they all work together. Mm -hmm. When you say um, you're able to record major losses when you went with that, that uh, syndicator, it was be as a result of you investing in that syndication. That, that reflects a loss on your taxes? Yeah, so it's the, it's the bonus depreciation, the mm -hmm. cost segregation that we talked about yeah. earlier. So that's, that's the one where I invested $50,000 and on my K-1, they sent me back a $55,000 loss, yeah. which was great because it's a paper loss. And what that does is I can offset, that $55,000 can offset the gain I had from selling another property. So if I had a capital gain of $60,000, mm -hmm. now I only have a $5,000 gain. And so instead of paying taxes on 60,000 or whatever the numbers were, I'm only paying it on five thousand. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's where you make your money, right? Because now you're not paying tax. Mm -hmm. We're now on to chapter six. We're flying through this thing. Now you talked about how to pick a sponsor and an asset class. Uh, the third way you talked about was diversifying by market. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So you want to be in different markets. You don't want to be in all, you know, everything in Dallas. You want mm -hmm. to diversify a little bit, but you want to be in good markets. So you have to find markets where Sometimes the popular markets are a good place to start. Right now it's Phoenix, Dallas, Atlanta. Those are some of the popular markets. It's also, I think, I like to look for off markets that, that aren't popular yet, like Boise um, is one, Colorado Springs is another one. So you want to find markets that are either good now or are going to be good. Well, what separates a good market from a not so good market? One of the main factors to call it a good market is population growth, mm -hmm. right? You want people to be moving there. So whatever the reason is or why, why they're moving, a lot of people are moving to Dallas, a lot of people are moving to Texas, to Florida, all the, you know, some of the Sunbelt states, Arizona. So the more people there are, the more they're going to need real estate, right? So you follow the population growth. Another good aspect of a market would be where the state has good landlord-tenant laws, meaning in favor of the landlord, mm -hmm. or they have uh, no taxes like Florida, you mm -hmm. know, so there's no state income tax. So that helps you out. There could be, they just have nice business regulations that are business friendly. So all of these things make a good market. You also want job growth. And if people are moving there, they're generally moving there for jobs. But you want strong, stable, and diversified jobs. So you don't want to, you know, go to a, a town that maybe a military town, because if the military pulls out, then there's no jobs left. So you want to have a diverse economy with a lot of different employers. Hopefully you could get a place where major companies are moving their headquarters or they're moving large, you know, groups of people there. And so you just, job growth and population growth are, are some of the big factors. Well, you've labeled what a good market is. What's a not so good market? Well, I would say it's kind of just the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's people are leaving um, or there's high regulation. So a bad market would be, you know, 
um, a place like maybe New York that has high cost of living, people are moving out, there's high regulations. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always have to be a bad market. Mm -hmm. I'm also investing with a guy in New York because he's a local guy and everyone looks at New York and says, bad market, not going there. Mm -hmm. Well, he's a local guy. He knows the, he knows the, how the rent control works. He knows how everything works. People have to live, right? Somewhere. Yep. So he is successful there. Mm -hmm. Now, I typically don't go in New York for my investments, but you find little pockets. And so part of it is you want to find either a good market or find an operator who has a good story in a bad market because that can be an advantage too. And other things you can do when you, when you get an actual deal is you can go onto Google Maps and just take a tour, right? See what, what's around it. Mm -hmm. You could be in a, in a place that is a, you know, a bad neighborhood, but they, they're building a brand new Walgreens across the street. Well, Walgreens does a ton of research. So mm -hmm. if they're building there, chances are that neighborhood's gonna turn around, yeah. right? You can go on Trulia and they have a crime map. And so what I do is I type the address in, put it on Trulia, and I just, I'm just looking for how blue is it compared to the, to the neighboring places, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things you can do to look at the, so you wanna analyze the overall market, but then when you're analyzing a specific deal, then you look at the, the sub-market in the very small area where the property is. Right, right. One other thing that might be helpful when you're trying to select a market is a market that you're familiar with, right? If you grew up in Indianapolis and you know something that everybody else doesn't, then that might be a good place to invest in because mm. you know how the market operates. Also, again, I keep saying it, use your community, right? If you want to know what a good market is, ask some other people that are investing there. Mm -hmm. So that concludes chapter six. On to the next chapter. We'll see you there. Okay, Jim, so we've screened a sponsor, we selected an asset class, and we picked a few of our favorite markets. Now we're getting into deal flow. How do we choose the deal we want to invest in? That's a great question. I, I'm a passive investor. I do not want to re-underwrite the deal. That's the job of the sponsor, right? So I've done a great deal of work evaluating the sponsor, getting to know, like, and trust the sponsor, and I understand that um, they know what they're doing and I'm confident in them. So I don't want to I don't want to do their job and, and dig in to everything and, and figure everything out from scratch, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's their job. Now that I have confidence in them, I'm going to trust that the deal meets most of my metrics. So, but I still want to check. I still want to make sure. And the funny thing is, this is probably the shortest chapter: how to analyze the deal. Because what you really want to do is make sure you have the right sponsor, mm -hmm. the right asset class, and the right market. Those are the tough parts. Now, when the deal comes, you look at it and you're like, okay. I knew this was coming. Mm -hmm. And so what we do at Left Field Investors, we created what we call a deal analyzer. And so we take maybe 30 different metrics and we put them in our deal analyzer. And it basically, it's an Excel spreadsheet that turns green if it fits mm -hmm. our parameters and red if it doesn't. And so red doesn't mean don't invest. Red means this generates a question. And how I use this is as another check on the sponsor. I'm checking the deal to make sure it fits my metrics. And we'll talk about a few of those. Mm -hmm. But I really am also checking the sponsor. So what happens is, let's say I get five red flags. So I'm going to contact the sponsor and say, hey, I got questions on these five things. Now, I'm not as concerned with what the answer is. I'm more concerned with how it's answered. Are you responsive? Do you get back to me within 24 hours? It sounds like that's a little too nitpicky. But if you don't get back to me before I've given, me, given you my money, are you going to get back to me after you have my money? Probably not. So that's a test. The other is, how do you answer my questions? Do you know the answers or, or is it difficult for you? Or, or, or you, do you get upset that I'm asking questions? All of those are red flags. I get. Most sponsors are going to give me very detailed answers. Mm -hmm. and that makes me not only feel better about the deal, but it also makes me feel better about the sponsor. So I focus on 
the metrics through the deal analyzer. And, and that's how I, that's how I vet a deal. Yeah. I like that. Well, let's bring up these metrics. Uh, what are some different metrics that you look at? So, like I said, there's about 30 of them on that, on that tool that we use, but everybody I think has their favorites. And some of the favorites that I have are rent growth, right? I want to see that there's, and this is all looking at the pro forma. I want to see that they've had reasonable rent growth. I don't want to see 10% rent growth in year one. What's a pro forma? Oh, thank you. So pro forma is kind of a prediction of how they think the property, the financials will perform over the next three, five, 10 years, however long their time horizon is for that investment. So you're looking at, they do full financial reports based on assumptions that they make. Mm -hmm. And that's the pro forma. So the rent growth pro forma, if they say they're going to get rent increases of 10% in year one, I wonder how they do that. Yeah. Because most of the leases don't, you know, they come due every, you know, on all kinds of different dates. So how are you going to get everyone up 10% immediately? You're not. Mm -hmm. So a lot Mm -hmm. of uh, syndicators will use, you know, overly aggressive assumptions on rent growth. So, but if I see one that's two or 3% every year consistent rent growth, that makes sense because you not only, and it depends also if they're a value add property, which means an old property where they put a bunch of work into it, you should be able to get more rent increase, right? Maybe you can get 4% a year. If it's a property that was just built three years ago and there's no work to do to it, you might only get one or 2%, but those numbers have to be consistent. They have to make sense based on the property. Mm-hmm. What are some other more important metrics? So another one I like is break-even occupancy. So break-even occupancy is the, the amount of vacancy you can have and have the property still break-even. Mm. So that just gives you, that shows you how much buffer you have. And I like to see at least 80%, you know, no higher than 80% break-even because if something goes wrong and occupancy drops to 90 or 85%, I know that we're still making money and we would break even at the 80% mark. So mm-hmm. the, the lower that number, the better. Another one that I like that I, I didn't even understand before was economic vacancy. So it's not vacancy, it's economic vacancy. And when I own single family properties, I always threw in 5% for vacancy, mm-hmm. right? Just in my underwriting and evaluations. Right. Well, there's more to vacancy than just someone not being in an apartment, right? So economic vacancy includes vacancy, concessions, which is, you know, throw in a, a free month's rent or a TV if you sign now or mm-hmm. something like that. Bad debt, which means uncollectible, you know, stuff you didn't collect. Loss to lease, which is the major one. So loss to lease is if the market rate for an apartment that, that like you have is a thousand bucks and you're only collecting 800, that's lot, that's $200 of loss to lease. Oh. And so that's a real driver, right? If you have big loss to lease, you can, you, and you get a, rid of that, then your vacancy goes, goes way down. And then there's actual vacancy. And then the last one is non-revenue units, like if they convert one unit to storage or something like that. Mm-hmm. So all of those add up to economic vacancy. And I like to see that economic vacancy at about 8%. Mm-hmm. If it's much lower than that, then that's one of the questions I ask. Why is economic vacancy so low? If it's below 5%, then I'm having a hard time believing it. Unless it's in some place like Boise, Idaho, where someone told me there was like three vacant apartments in the whole town. Yeah. So those vacancy numbers, I would believe, but you always have to put everything in context. So economic vacancy uh, includes that 5% of regular vacancy that you typically budget for. Yes, absolutely. It's it's all of those. Okay, sweet. And so another uh, metric I like to look at is property taxes. So usually when someone buys a property, the county reevaluates 
the taxes based on the new price that you bought it at, mm-hmm. right? So taxes should be higher. And so what I look at in the pro forma, which is a prediction of what the tax burden will be, is I want to make sure that the current taxes are lower than what they're projecting in the future mm-hmm. because you're expecting the taxes to go up. So I just like to make sure, you know, that's another place where a syndicator could kind of fudge the numbers to make it look, make returns look better. But in the end, they won't be better. Is there anything else with regards to the metrics? You know, I think everybody needs to find their four or five favorite metrics or, or what they really want to look at and, and concentrate on those. One of the things, and I, I mentioned this, but I think it's worth repeating, is that part of the process of evaluating the deal is the continuation of the evaluation of the sponsor. And so I really use the deal information, the deal metrics to do a double check on the sponsor. Do they understand the deal? Do they know what they're doing? Are they going to communicate with me? And, you know, are they, are they going to be responsive? I think those are super important things because there's nothing more frustrating than sending someone $50,000 and not hearing from them again. Oh, yeah. Need a sponsor analyzer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Sweet. Well, that concludes chapter seven. We're now headed to chapter eight. Welcome back to the master class. We are now on chapter eight. What to expect before, during, and after investing in a syndication. From what I gather, passive investing doesn't seem so passive uh, after all we've talked about. Um, We've gone over how to pick a sponsor, an asset class, a market, and a deal. But can you kind of put a bow on this and put it all together uh, for us? Can you talk me through the process of investing in a syndication? Sure. So you're right. It, it doesn't seem passive because it is very active at the beginning when we're doing all those things you just mentioned, right? Screening the sponsor, the deal, the market, the asset class. It's afterwards that becomes more passive after you've made the investment. And also, once you get more experienced and you ha- build a relationship with a syndicator, it's going to be even more passive because you'll know the deals that they're going to send you and you'll spend even less and less time on each deal. So it it is active in the beginning, but it becomes less and less as you as you move forward. Okay, so let's break it down step by step for our viewers who have been watching. What's the first thing we need to do? What do we want to do before we actually invest in this syndication? Okay, I, I like I like breaking it down this way. So first, you want to find a sponsor. And again, left field investors, we have a sponsor overview, which is kind of small summaries of a bunch of different sponsors. We also have the um, sponsor screener, which helps ask you questions. So again, if you're using your community this is helpful. So first is find a sponsor. And to do that, you need to interview a sponsor, review that sponsor's past deals, and you can use our deal analyzer to do that. And and I I recommend people looking at past deals and ask the sponsor, hey, can you send me your last deal? So you can kind of get a feeling for it when the actual deal comes in. Mm -hmm. And then when they send you a current deal, you're going to want to analyze that deal using whatever tools you have. Then you're going to make your investment decision. You're going to say, yep, I'm going to do it. And if you're going to do it, you submit what they call a reserve. Now, there's hard reserves and soft reserves. Soft reserves are ones that you can back out of. You can say, yep, I'm going to invest $50,000 in this because sometimes you have to invest before you have full information. You have to commit because there's so much capital on the sidelines waiting to invest. Mm -hmm. So that's a soft reserve. You can back out if you want. Then there's hard reserves, which is if you back out, that syndicator will not likely ever let you into a deal again. So a hard reserve, you need to know you're making a hard reserve and you can ask them, Hey, is this a, can I, can I submit a soft reserve or is this, is this more committed than that? And then at that, in that process, you may also have to show that you're accredited if it's a deal that requires you to be accredited. And for that, they either have you fill out a form, like there's websites that'll prove that you're accredited, or if you have an accountant, they'll often um, write a letter 
that says, yes, he's accredited. Okay, so that takes care of everything we need to know before the actual syndication. But now uh, we've sent that reserve. What are we doing now during the syndication? So you're still kind of in the before, but you've made the decision. So the during to me is, this is when you are signing the subscription document. So you, 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 you've already committed. So now they're going to send you all the documents you need to sign. Yeah. So you're going to review and sign the subscription document. You're going to sign the PPM, the private placement memorandum. You're going to review the operating agreement, make sure that's all good to go. You're going to get the wire instructions. Now, this doesn't seem like it's a, a big step. But for me, what I've learned is you want to get those wire instructions securely. Because a lot of the syndicators will just send it in an email. And there's been a lot of wire fraud. Absolutely. And so what I do is I either get the instructions and call and verify them. Or what I usually do is I ask the syndicator to send it in a DocuSign or some other kind of secure document so that I, I never wire money just that I got the instructions on email without verifying it. So that's very important. A lot of syndicators are now, they have portals on the internet where mm -hmm. you can like go in and see the investments and they'll just post them there. Mm -hmm. So Make sure it's, you're sending it securely, then you send the wire, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the during. Now you're just done. Yeah, you want to double, quadruple, triple check that one. Right, and part of that triple check, thank you for saying that, is once you send the wire, confirm that they got it. Mm -hmm. right? I always send an email to the sponsor saying, just sent the wire, let me know when you get it. And then I follow up with them until they give me written confirmation that they've received the wire. I do the same thing on a smaller scale on Cash App. I'll send a dollar first just to make yeah. sure they get the dollar. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what is the process like after that? So after is now we're, we're saying after you made the decision to invest and you've sent the wire. So yeah. now we're talking about during the investment. Right yeah. now the investment's just going on. So what you need to do is save all the documents. This is kind of tedious, but if you don't do it now, you're, you're going to regret it. So you save all the documents, right? The signed documents, the PPM subscription agreement, the offering memorandum where they're giving you all the details. You save all of that stuff, either paper files or you can save it electronically. Then you enter the deal in whatever kind of tracking system you have. Now, this has been a real problem for people is there, there aren't any official ways to track this. And what you want to track is you want to track your distributions, make sure they're coming. You want to compare those to the pro forma, what they said they would send you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you only have one or two deals, Excel or something like that is fine. Um, but it gets complicated when you have 20 or 30 deals and you're tracking all this stuff. So at Left Field Investors, we've developed a um, portfolio tracker. And it's an online web tool where you can put all your deals and it'll help track stuff. So that, that's what I use. And the things you want to track are the date you invested, the amount you invested, the name, obviously, then the sponsor's name and the entity that owns it, because those are going to be different. How you invested. Did you invest personally? Did you invest your own LLC? Did you invest through your tribe best tribe or a trust? And then some of the financial assumptions from the pro forma, the expected annual cash flow, the IRR, which is internal rate of return for the life of the deal. I'll talk about that in a second. And then if there's refinances expected when those come in. And then you're going to track your distributions, compare them to expected and then you're gonna track your K-1s. What was that IRR you were talking about? Okay, so IRR, it's really complicated to calculate, but basically what it is, is it's just using the time value of money, saying that if I receive $50,000 today from my investment, that's much better than $50,000 that I receive five years from now. So all it does is it brings everything into the, into the present tense as far as money. So it, it allows you to compare two different deals mm -hmm. that have 
incomes at different times mm -hmm. and compare them as far as what the returns are. Oh, okay. Then you'll be able to maybe also calculate if you're missing out on opportunity costs by investing in something quicker that you'll receive your money back quicker for now. Exactly. And you always want to, it's a great point because you always want to receive your money faster and pay your taxes slower. Mm -hmm. And so if you can figure out how to do both of those, that's how you're really making money. Nice. That concludes chapter eight. On to the next chapter. Welcome back to the master class. You made it to the final chapter, chapter nine and my favorite chapter. How to invest with a tribe. Jim, you're a part of five tribes and you're a mentor of three. Why are you so attracted to tribe investing? I, I love creating and working with the community. And, and that, that's, that's part of it. It's the reason I started Left Field Investors was to learn, network, and grow with other people who are interested in this too. And part of it is these type of investments have not been accessible to everybody. Yeah. And part of my passion is sharing that anyone can do this. You can do this if you want to do this. And the easiest way to do it is with tribes. Because let's be honest, most people don't have 50 grand that they can invest at one time and regularly to get that diversification. Mm -hmm. right? If you're investing 50 grand, it's going to take a long, long time to save that up. And tribes solve that problem. Group investing solves that problem. You get into many more deals. You can have the diversification. You can get into real estate. And you can learn and grow with others. And that's building a community. And that's what I'm passionate about. Mm. Five tribes, are they all investing in like the same thing? Or can you kind of tell me a little more about them? Yeah, so they're all very different. And they're all established for very different reasons. So, so I'll go through them so you can understand maybe how tribes work a little bit. Yeah. So the first tribe I was in was, it was a couple of my former financial advising clients who they're highly paid professionals and they want to be in real estate, but they don't have the time and they don't have the desire to learn about it. And mm -hmm. they knew I was doing this passive investing. And so we figured, hey, let's do it together. And TribeVest made that super easy. So for those guys, I find deals. I will call or text them and say, hey, do you guys have any capital? If they do, then they'll say, okay, let's do it. If they don't, then, then we'll wait for the next deal. So they don't get involved in the deals at all, other than knowing maybe the asset class. Mm -hmm. And they're just relying on me to, to do that work for them. And the reason why it's fine with me doing that, I'm fine with that, is because I'm doing this investing anyway, but partnering with them, we can get into more deals and we have the whole diversification thing. So this is a very passive, they're very passive, and I'm just finding the investments for them. Do they, are they supply the money and you supply the expertise? We contribute equally, mm. but I, so we, we split it 33, 33, 34. So mm. I get other proceeds, I'll get an extra percent for the legwork that I'm doing. Got it. Got and it. So some of the tribes are set up that way. Like there's another one of my tribes, my second tribe, which um, somebody else manages, uh, uh, another one of the founders of Left Field Investors manages. But this one, so I remember I told you about the syndicator that we really liked that was getting me um, a lot of passive loss, mm -hmm. the bonus depreciation. Well, they come out with a deal every month, at least even maybe even more. And their minimum is $25,000 and they have great historical returns. So you, you can't be in every one of those deals, right? Because if there's 12 deals a year at 25 grand, that's just too much. Mm -hmm. But how do you pick which one to be in? Because you don't know which one's going to be the, the rock star and which is going to be just av average. And for them, average is 30% return. So it's average a great average. Good. <laughs> yeah. So we decided, hey, let's team up. So me and this other founder and, and some of his family, we, five of us got together and we said, we'll just invest in every deal. So now we put the minimums 25,000. So every time they come out with a deal, we all chuck $5,000 into our TribeVest account, invest in the deal and off we go. 
And that one, the other guy is managing that tribe. And so he takes a little extra cut for doing all the paperwork and all the, the processing and things like that. So th that's a totally different purpose. Mm -hmm. And that tribe's grown a little bit too, because now we'll also get into other deals that we get interested in. Mm -hmm. But the, the one with that sponsor, those are automatic. Then we oh, don't even talk about those. That's awesome. I love that. Tell me about some of the other tribes. So the, the third tribe I started was this was for beginners. This is, I wouldn't have had to start this tribe if we had this masterclass. I could have just showed them the video. <laughs> but basically, this is mishmash of people. There's 11 people. Some are neighbors. Some are, you know, I have a college friend in there. Some are former financial advising clients. These are people that um, they don't own any real estate other than their house. And they may never have gotten into real estate, but they, they heard what I was doing and they were interested. And so we started a group and we started contributing $100 a month. Right? You know, the minimums are going to be $25,000, right? So 11 people, it took us a while. And then we did a little lump sum, but it was during the pandemic when we did this. So we would do Zoom calls every couple of weeks where I would take a topic and I would explain, I explain syndication. I explain all the stuff we're doing here. And at the end, we found a sponsor and it was non-accredited. This is what made me go find all these non-accredited people. We found a sponsor that we really liked. The sponsor actually came to one of our Zoom calls and talked about how he operates and what he does. And then we invested in this apartment deal. And I mean, everyone's excited, right? It's people that, you know, they, they, they don't necessarily have the means to put $25,000 in a syndication of their own, but now we're up to 150 bucks a month. It's year two. We're going to get to the second deal in August. And, you know, it's just growing their portfolios and it'll be a little extra boost to their wealth. And then they can either invest on their own, start their own tribes. It's just to, to grow it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a learning tribe and it's one of my favorite groups. Yeah. So the last two tribes are very similar. They're just made up of members from the left field uh, investors community, people who've heard us talking about tribe best and are interested. And they just wanted to get a group together. And they're all people who already know a little bit about syndication, but some of these were their first investments in syndications. So this group is a learning group for sure, but they're learning more, not just from me, they're learning from the community and they form these smaller communities together that are working together to increase their wealth. And that's, that's the goal, right? You wanna get in these communities where you can learn, learn together and figure out how to do this syndication thing. And the whole goal is, you know, we're not all trying to become rich, but we're trying to become time independent, right? So you're not trading money for time, or time mm -hmm. for money. You're, you're building wealth so that you can have these passive investments that you don't have to worry about. You know, if I go on vacation next week, I'm still going to have money coming in. And that's what passive investing is all about. Out of all of your tribes, um, how many people are you investing with? Like how many uh, people are part of each tribe? So I've, uh, there's a tribe that has three, a tribe that has five, tribe, two tribes that have 11, and another one I think has maybe 10. Yeah. Wow. So, and you can have any number. I think um, a, lot of the, a lot of the benefits of the tribe is the community talking together and, and everything. But once it gets much past 11, I think it's going to be hard to get anything done because coordinating schedules for calls and everything. But honestly, the TribeVest website makes it really easy because there's messaging on there. There's all kinds. Of, and I think we'll talk about that in a minute. There's all kinds of stuff on there that even makes a large group easy to manage. Mm -hmm. So you have, you're involved in then actively investing with over 30 people. Um, how do you find people to be in your tribe? Yeah, I, I, I never really counted the 30 people, but you're right. So they, they really just come together for whatever purpose it is, right? I talk about passive investing a lot because I'm passionate about it. And so you can start groups with friends or you can start groups with colleagues or whoever 
your network that you want to work with is. Or some of these tribes, I had people that I never met before. And I met them through a couple uh, tribe best people and heard of tribe best, but not left field investors. And they contacted me. And, and so you want to have some familiarity, right? I think tribe best a lot talks about investing with family and friends and mm -hmm. that's best. But there are some groups that I'm in where nobody knows anybody. They all know me because of my role at left field investors. And so we've developed trust between me and you, right? So then an acquaintance of yours might then trust me. And that's, mm -hmm. you need to have kind of the trust working out so that you can feel comfortable investing with people because it's a lot of money, mm -hmm. right? And again, TribeVest helps with that because the money is secure, it's online. You know, TribeVest has all the, the procedures and policies that kind of help with that trust aspect as well. Once you've actually found a tribe, how do you know that everybody's a good fit for the group? It, this is a critical step, right? Yeah. You want to make sure that the tribe is aligned. Everyone understands that this is a long-term investment. You know, I, I tell everybody there's nothing more illiquid than a tribe best tribe investing in syndications, right? These are long, and that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means understand that once you join this tribe, you know, you're dating now, but you're going to be married once you sign that LLC. Mm -hmm. And that means it's going to be difficult to get out of if, if you want to. So if everyone's aligned and understands, hey, we're investing for appreciation or we're investing for cash flow, then, you know, you, you kind of have everyone's understanding, right? So a good example for me is the first tribe that I told you about with three people in it, it had four. And uh, the fourth was my dad. Yeah. And um, it just wasn't a good fit for him, yeah. right? So we, we did all the tribe best stuff and he was just having questions about things and he wasn't really, he just, it wasn't the right fit for him. And so we bought him out and that was fine. There was no hard feelings, but that, that's great, mm -hmm. right? And some of these left field investor tribes that we've started, we'll start out with a group and we'll have a few Zoom meetings. Then everyone's talking, getting to know each other and talking about the tribe. And we'll have people drop out all the time. Yep. And it's great. And I tell the people to drop out, hey, no hard feelings because this wasn't the right fit for whatever reason. Better get out now than later. Yeah. And then usually a couple more stragglers come in and we, you know, and then the group kind of coalesces before we, before we invest, we probably have three, four, five meetings and people get to know each other and there's emails and, and all that. So I think that's important. It's, it's to find people that you know, like, and trust that you want to build a community with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the tribe best community or the left field investors community. But once you form a tribe, that's another small community, right? Mm -hmm. and so you need to make sure that you have people that you're going to be compatible with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in real estate and in business, a lot of times people say, stay away from family, like don't rent to your family members. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't purchase property with family. But this, this really does uh, spread the risk sometimes. Um, if you can go into it with the TribeVest mindset and everything is transparent, they can see everything. It's all laid out on the table makes it safer to invest with those people, uh, with your family and your friends. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, talking about that, like how the process works is just, you go to the website. Now, when I first started the website, uh, you know, it's grown a lot and it's gotten a lot better. Mm. And now people ask me, hey, I need help um, setting up a tribe. And I say, no, no, you don't. <laughs> go, go do it. It's yeah. easy. And there's one of the guys um, in one of my groups, I send people to him now because mm. he just set up his tribe. It was super easy. I didn't help him at all. And so people are now saying, hey, can you help me go on TribeVest and start a tribe? I say, wow. no, call Alvin. He'll do it for you because he just did it and it takes three minutes. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, when you, when you go online to set it up, <clears throat> TribeVest is going to help you set up your LLC, mm -hmm. right? Because you need to form a company so that you're all equal owners or however you want to set it up. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to set up voting rules because you want to make sure that if you're making an investment, everyone's on board. And so for my tribe of three, 
our rules are everyone has to agree 100 percent or we don't invest my tribe of 11 we do seven people mm-hmm. right because you don't want to drag people along who don't want to invest but you also don't want one person to to stop the show right and so tribe best helps with all of them and they set up a business bank account for you and then they do the um the same page right so that you you talk about alignment and investing with family members, you want to make sure everyone's on the same page. So everyone gets together and figures out, all right, what's the process? What are we going to do? And everyone agrees to it. And that reduces some of the risk of investing with family or friends, I think. So can you kind of sum up the TribeVest online experience? TribeVest allows you to do everything from the website, from forming your LLC, funding, doing the banking, doing voting on, you know, are you going to invest in this or that messaging? And you can store your documents as well. You can even send wire transfers from there. And it is secure. It's just like you're sending from the bank. That's it. That was our syndication masterclass presented by Leftfield Investors in partnership with TribeVest. If you didn't get enough with just the audio and you want to see our smiling faces, you can see Julian and me in the YouTube version of the masterclass by going to leftfieldinvestors.com and clicking on the master masterclass button in the top right. If you need help finding the right real estate syndication for you, feel free to reach out to me at jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. You can also go to our website at leftfieldinvestors.com to get more information and to subscribe to our newsletter. To learn more about investing as a group through syndications or any investment strategy you want to pursue with family and friends, go to tribebest.com slash partners slash LF. You'll get $50 deposited in your new TribeBest business bank account if you sign up through that URL. Next week, we will return to our normal format. I want to give a special thanks to TribeBest, not only for supporting this podcast and producing the masterclass, but also for helping regular people invest in real estate. See you next week. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.